You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Good Saturday afternoon. Hope everybody had a great day today. And welcome into Packers Total Access. I'm your host, Clayton Bailey. You can check us out on Packernet.com. You can find me on Twitter at Packers underscore access. Now, guys, today um, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're actually going to answer a listener email. And um, it's going to be kind of an X's and O's type type, uh, show, I guess you could say, right? And, you know, if you're, if you're sitting there wondering, okay, how can I email the show and get in touch with you? You can do that by sending a message to uh, Packers Total Access at gmail.com, uh, just like my good buddy Jake did here. As he uh, sent in an email today that's going to occupy more than likely the entire show. <clears throat> First of all, I apologize for the clearing of the throat, I'm dealing with a few symptoms, but we're going we're gonna to get through this. And I uh, just want to say that the, uh, the show today is presented or brought to you by uh, mercyandme.ca. If you guys are, you know, looking to buy gifts for, uh, you know, for a family member or maybe a friend who's expecting a little one on the way, or or maybe just some uh, some really cool home crafted, you know, homemade gifts, um, any anything from blankets to uh, you know other accessories, definitely go check out mercyandme.ca. It's one of our uh, very loyal listeners. They have a family-owned business, got some really cool products. I told you on a previous episode, I actually made a couple purchases for some friends of ours who were expecting twins, and they absolutely loved uh, the products that we had, you know, sent to them. And uh, really, really convenient, really clean website. Everything is just top-notch. So I would suggest that you uh, that you go on there and check that out for sure. And it really is an opportunity to support someone who supports the show. That's something that's always been big to me. Maybe I'm a cheese ball, but when I started uh, pulling for the Packers and watching their games, you know, I, I always mentioned that there was a certain uh, brand of cheese that sponsored. It was the official cheese of the Green Bay Packers. And I know that from that day forward, as long as they were sponsoring them, I would always go to the grocery store and, and I would get that cheese just because you want to support people who support things that are important to you. Right. And this is no different here. So make sure you check that out for, you know, any, any baby needs. Uh, I shouldn't say baby needs. I mean, it's not like they're out behind the Sunoco gas station selling babies. That's not what they're doing over there. Okay. <laughs> Just get that straight, but really cool bibs, things like that, blankets, uh, you know, teething uh, items, stuff like that. So make sure you check them out and we appreciate their support. So, the other thing, we're, we have our Monday night football giveaway, Packers versus Rams. That's going to be December 19th. 
It's a Monday Night Football game. Indoor club seats. We're giving away one indoor club seat as well as a VIP tailgate pass. Going to be an awesome time. You get to come hang out with us and watch the game. Um, if you want to enter that contest, just go to my Twitter page, at Packers underscore access, and uh, follow the account, and then there will be a tweet at the top of the page that's pinned. Uh, just retweet that pinned tweet, and that will enter you into the contest. We're going to announce that here in just a few short weeks, and I'm really, really excited about doing that to see who wins. He was going to be hanging out with us there for uh, for that ball game. So, with all that being said, let's get into the, the listener email. And this comes from the mercyandme.ca inbox. And this is our buddy Jake. He's emailed the show several times. He said, hello, Clayton. Recently, you began talking X's and O's and seemed to get very excited about it. I hear you from time to time talk about offenses and defenses from the past and was just curious how much of Coach LaFleur's offense and defense are you familiar with? It's okay if you don't want to spend your show doing so, but I would love to learn a little bit about it. If not, thanks anyway for your hard work. Jake. All right. Well, Jake, we're going to do that, man. You emailed at the perfect time because, you know, we got a little bit of downtime. Training camp's about to get kicked off. We got some Packers news that we're going to try to hit on here, too, as the show wraps up. But, uh, you know, really, this is the perfect time to do this. And you caught on very well. I'm, I'm a X's and O's nut. A lot of people don't know that about me. They think, oh, he's just a history nerd and he, he just, you know, kind of likes to watch the game, this and that. Dude, I am. I, I've, I've been studying the game of football really, really closely since uh, probably around 2007. I started watching NFL football regularly as a Packers fan back in 03. But since 2007, I just became enamored with the X's and O's aspect of the, uh, you know, of the, uh, the game of pro football. It's just something that's always interests me. And I, I, I'm the kind of guy that I like to reverse engineer things. You know, I, I want to understand how something works. I'm not the type of person to just – the one of my biggest pet peeves is if somebody tries to give me busy work, oh, I'll fly off the handle. I cannot stand just, hey, here, do this because you need to be doing something. It has to be with a purpose. It has to be with a certain level of passion. I want to come away knowing that I learned something that wasn't wasting my time. I'm not one of those people that kind of sit still and just like to, quote, unquote, Netflix and chill, all that stuff, right? I don't watch movies. I watch documentaries. All that stuff's true because – I never want to come away from a significant amount of time spent without having something that I gained from it, right? It's just something that's very, very important to me. So when I started diving into the game of football and more specifically pro football in the National Football League, it, it was just something I become addicted to. I really did. And, you know, my wife, it's funny, she's always been a football fan, but but she has told me several times, you, you, you've got me just about hating the game of football now <laughs> because I have a very, and she says it best, <clears throat> a very, uh, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but I get very, very consumed with things that interest me. I just want to learn the ins and outs, I guess is the best way of putting it. So we're going to try to do that for you today, Jake, and, and the listeners out there. So <clears throat> if X's and O's isn't your type of thing, might want to skip ahead to the next podcast because this is going to be something that's very, very uh, uh, detail oriented. I'm not going to, there's absolutely no way in a, in a 30, 45 minute hour long podcast would I be able to cover the entire offense and defense that this coaching staff runs, but I'm going to try to give you a snapshot of what they do. And, and most of you guys know this information, but maybe it would be fun just to kind of tag along and join the conversation. So that's what we're going to do here. Okay. So, my goal is to stay on time. Again, we're using this new format where it's unedited, and I wanted that to uh, to continue so everything's kind of raw. 
and uh, and straightforward in that regard rather than uh, hitting the edit button 7,500 times, right? So let's do this. Let's jump into the offense. But first, uh, let's play us a little clip here. Third down and three. Rodgers steps through. He's got Jones. Jones wide open. Down inside the 15. They forgot about Aaron Jones. Here he is, but watch Jimmy Ward. Dante Johnson, he thinks he's got help. But Ward bites up here, and it just allows Jones to run right in behind him. Just, just a huge play there in the uh, in the NFC Divisional round there against the 49ers. And like I said before, man, I didn't even realize just how much Aaron Jones went off in that game. For some reason, I was thinking he had an off game. And when I went back and looked at the statistics and watched the game again, it was like, wow, he was he was what really carried our offense for the little bit of offense we had in that game. So, um, all right, let's do this. Let's dive into it. Let's start first with run-pass ratio, okay? If this is something that's going to change, you know, year in and year out, season to season. But last year, in 2021, Matt LaFleur, his run-to-pass ratio was 42% run, 58% pass. Now, when you break down the running game, a lot of people know that this is an what they call an outside zone run scheme, right? A West Coast outside zone is what they run. Well, that's kind of their, their home run play. That's the play that kind of keeps the defense honest. But in, in all honesty, they run in the A-gap quite a bit. As a matter of fact, I've got the runs broke down here. When you talk about running behind center, A-gap left, A-gap, A-gap right, they ran the ball 151 times. That was hands down the most – uh, as far as a specific zone or gap that they ran to last year. Within that A gap, they only averaged 3.8 yards per carry, and they had six explosive plays off of 151 carries. So when they ran off, off right guard, which would be A to B gap, um, you know, right, was 52 carries, and they averaged four yards per carry, a little bit better than, than there in the A gap. Um, they had four explosive plays off just 52 carries. When they ran off left guard, they did it 43 times. They averaged 6.6 yards per carry. Now, we know who plays left guard, right? And I know things got shuffled around last year, and you had Elton Jenkins over there quite a bit at left tackle. But 6.6 yards per carry on left guard. And what they're doing is utilizing the fact that they're running weak side plays, right? When they ran B-gap left off left guard, 43 carries, 6.6 yards per carry. That was their team high, seven explosive plays off just 43 carries. It's amazing. So when they ran right tackle, it was 39 carries, four yards per carry, only one explosive play. When they ran left tackle, 34 carries, only 2.9 yards per carry, zero explosive plays. Wide right, here is your outside zone run. You could consider the B and C as uh, outside zone runs, I guess, if you want to if you want to get, you know, really, really detailed about it. But these were the plays that were outside of the tackle wide right. Uh, you know, wide zone right was 40 carries, 5.6 yards per carry. They had seven explosive plays off just 40 carries. So running wide right to the strong side typically is the money play for the Green Bay Packers when it comes to the running the football. Wide left, they had 51 carries. They averaged 4.7 yards per carry with three explosive plays. So what you're seeing here is what LaFleur liked to do last year is 
a gap left wide right is what they really, really keyed in on and had a lot of success at. Okay. Now all of that's going to kind of vary with the strengths and weaknesses of each individual team year in and year out. But at the same time, you want to play to your strengths and they had, they had a lot of strength, um, you know, running the ball to those areas. So let's go to the passing, uh, you know, passing aspect of the offense. <clears throat> the, as far as, the targets are concerned by position. Wide receivers were targeted 63% of the time, and they had a 55% success rate. Running backs were targeted 19% of the time and had a 53% success rate. Tight ends were only targeted 17% of the time. They only had a 49% success rate. So what you see there is wide receivers, obviously, are the primary targets. We all know that. That goes without saying in any offense. But running backs – actually got the ball more often as far as targets are concerned in the passing game than tight ends last year. Now, when you break down personnel, they were in 11 personnel 61% of the time. And for those of you who don't know, what I mean by 11 personnel, that's the terminology that NFL coaches use when sending in players on and off the field, okay? So rather than saying, hey, we, we need three wide receivers out there, they say 11 personnel. The first number is running back. The second number is tight end. So it's 11 personnel, 1-1, one, one, right? That's one running back, one tight end. Obviously, that's a three wide receiver set. They ran that 61% of the time, and their success rate was 49%, okay? Their second most run personnel was 12 personnel. That's one running back, two tight ends. They ran that 29% of the time, and that was 49% success rate. Their third uh, third highest run personnel was 10 personnel, which is one running back, zero tight ends, four wide receivers. They ran that 4% of the time, only had a 38% success rate. Now, keep in mind that most of the time when you go to a four-wide set like that, especially in this Shanahan-style West Coast offense, you're probably playing from behind and you're trying to make up some ground. So obviously the success rate is going to be much lower if it's a third and long, a second and long, and you're down in the game. The defense is starting to key in on the pass. So don't be alarmed by that low success rate. That just tells me that when they're forced to go to that, that's what they do. But for the most part, they want to stay within 11 personnel and uh, 12 personnel. Now, they did run 13 personnel, one running back, three tight ends, 41 or I'm sorry, 2% of the time they had a 41% success rate. So when you break all those numbers down, although it was a very, very minute amount of snaps, 21 personnel with only 2% of the snaps was the most successful with a success rate of 52%. Okay. So 11 personnel is going to dominate the NFL. It's just, it, it's just how the league is, has morphed and changed. You know, there was a long time there in the nineties when I became a football fan, not necessarily with the Packers long before I became a Packers fan where 21 personnel was like the big thing. Eye formations, whether it was an offset eye or even, you know, some of the old school pro sets, things like that, that just seemed to be what was ran the most. But as we got into the two thousands and primarily into the 2010s, um, Teams started to go to 11 personnel a lot more. So 11 personnel, when I build a roster, <clears throat> whether it's a projection or what have you, what I'm always looking to do, guys, is go, okay, um, I'm, I'm looking to build uh, a team around the personnel I'm going to be in the most. Okay, if I'm going to be playing 11 personnel and my opponents are going to be playing 11 personnel well over 50% of the time, then I want to make sure that my nickel defense, right, three corners, two safeties, 
uh, two edge defenders, two defensive linemen, two inside linebackers. I want to make sure that that is the strongest point of my roster, right? And then on offense, it's the same thing. If you're going to be 11 personnel most of the time, then you're going to treat three wide receivers as starters, and that's where you want to spend your money. You want to have three wide receivers, one tight end, one running back, obviously a quarterback, your five offensive linemen. And that's where you want your starter money to go. Uh, if that indeed is going to be the personnel that you're going to be in the most. Now, to talk a little bit about Matt LaFleur's scheme, it was created by Mike Shanahan uh, way back in the day, you know, and basically what Mike Shanahan did, if you guys don't know, he started with the 49ers as a coordinator. He went to Denver for a short time. And uh, I'm sorry, he went to he went to Denver and kind of made his mark there, right, and uh, winning two Super Bowls. And Mike Shanahan, obviously, being Kyle Shanahan's father, that's how Kyle Shanahan has adapted or adopted this system coaching under his dad when they were with the Redskins. But if you go back to Denver, what he did was he said, you know what, let's take this West Coast offense that I run in San Francisco and let's blend it with Alex Gibbs' zone block running game, okay? And that's exactly how this wide zone West Coast offense was created. There's a number of different ways that people, you know, describe this or the, the quote unquote title they put on this special, this, uh, you know, specific type of offense. But that to me is the best way of understanding. It's a, it's a zone blocking scheme that keys in on wide zone runs, right. And cutback lanes. Cause that's what, uh, you know, Terrell Davis did so well with Denver in those two Super Bowl runs. And it has West Coast principles. Now, when you talk about West Coast principles, guys, route trees don't change. This is what amazes me. People make it sound like West Coast offense is so much different than the quote-unquote East Coast offenses, right? Or, you know, all these different offenses. The route trees are what they are. You know, the, the route tree never changes. Now, you've got uh, route concepts, right, passing concepts, route combinations that make up an offense, OK, those those route combinations, for the most part, are global. They're used in every offense. It's the terminology that differentiates between West Coast and some of the other traditional offenses. And and I don't want to get too deep into just the terminology of calling an offense. But essentially what it is, is the East Coast style with the New York Giants and some of those teams back in the 80s and, and early 90s before West Coast really took off. Uh, the West Coast offense took off, they used a number system where let's say they had, you know, three receivers going out in the route and, you know, the, the, from left to right, the receiver, you know, the X was going to run, uh, let's say he was going to run a one route. Right. And then let's say the tight end, let's say they're in I formation. It was going to be max protect. The tight end was the next one from left to right. Let's say he was going to run a three route. Okay. So you got a one and a three. And then the Z receiver, let's say he's going to run, uh, you know, whether it's a Y or Z, however the formation offsets, let's say he's going to run a five route. So the, the, the play call would be 135 or whatever those three combination numbers are, right? I formate 135, I formation, strong right whatever it is. Now with West Coast, they basically, they use that number system on the East Coast to make things very simple. But with John Gruden and some of these West Coast offenses, it seems to have gotten more and more complicating as years have gone on. What they did was they started to just say the routes out, out what, you know, so let's say it was a, you know, a fly route with a zig and uh, let's say, uh, you know, uh, whatever, uh, you know, a dig. Okay. So it will be, you know, let's let's say the, the play call would be I write, you know, whatever. They would literally call out the routes in the play. That's why when you see these NFL films with uh, with Aaron Rodgers calling a play and then he, he when he went to break the hoe, Z zag. Right. And he was fly cross 
And he, he was like, he was literally naming off all of the options that these receivers would have depending on what the defense was calling. And then at the end of it, he says, is that long enough for you? Ready break? Because it was, that's that West Coast terminology. That's the main difference between West Coast and, and other options, you know, other offenses. You know, it was designed as a short passing game. Absolutely it was. It was because it was actually created in the Midwest. I believe that, if I remember correct, that uh, Bill Walsh was in Cincinnati as the offensive coordinator. His starting quarterback went down who had a strong arm. Well, their backup quarterback had a weak arm, but he was accurate. So they molded the game plan around a short passing attack. Right. It wasn't there to replace the running game like so many people falsely claim. It was just simply that their quarterback didn't have a strong arm. So they look, let's utilize short passing combinations, short route combinations to, you know, play to the strength of our quarterback who has a weaker arm, but he's extremely accurate. That's where the West Coast offense was born. Obviously, Bill Walsh takes he takes the job in San Francisco and now it's dubbed the West Coast offense. So just a cool little fact there now. Um, you know, like I said, he he took basically Shanahan took the West Coast offense and he blended it with Alex Gibbs' zone block running game, okay, which really took off. And what's a really cool note, Vince Lombardi was one of the first people, I think he might have been the first person to teach zone blocking way back in the day. There's actually a book I'm reading right now. I think it's by Eichenberg is the guy's name. And it's called That First Season. If you guys get a chance, pick that book up. It is absolutely phenomenal. I'm only four or five chapters in, and it has been great so far. It's basically highlighting the year before Lombardi arrived and then that first season, how he changed the culture. And he talks about how he came in and said, look, no longer are you going to say I'm blocking that guy. I want the center to block the right, the, you know, the, the, uh, the left defensive tackle. I want the right guard to, to block the wide nine to a net that stuff's gone. We're simply going to block to a zone. And they said the guys really bucked on it. So I thought that was really, really cool that when you see the Packers sweep that Lombardi made so famous, it, he actually implemented one of the first, if not the first zone blocking systems in the history of pro football. Pretty, pretty remarkable. Now what's different, you know, the, the three, there's a lot of people that run this type of offense and everybody's got their own variations. The three that come to mind though, that have had the most success outside of Cincinnati is San Francisco with Kyle Shanahan, the LA Rams with Sean McVay, and obviously Matt LaFleur in Green Bay. What's the difference between the three? Well, San Francisco is very different from the LA Rams in their personnel. San Francisco only ran 11 personnel, three wide receivers, 48% of the time, right? Where the rest of the league is like, you know, using 11 personnel the majority of the time, San Francisco only used it 48% of the time. The LA Rams used it 86% of the time. That was hands down the team that used 11 personnel the most were the LA Rams, and lo and behold, they win the Super Bowl, right? Well, Matt LaFleur is right in between. He actually runs 11 personnel, like I said before. I think it was either 61 or 63% of the time. So he's right there smack dab in the middle of what the LA Rams and what San Francisco does. So it's kind of a hybrid of both of those uh, you know, coaches' offenses, Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan, both of which – Matt LaFleur worked for. Now, let's talk about the stretch outside zone run, okay? The, a lot of people think that the goal with the outside zone run is just to take the corner, bust it outside, and hit the sideline. It's designed to go that way. But really, 
What it's designed to do is attack the edge. And if the defense sets the edge, then the play's designed to cut back north and south. And, you know, I, I'm I'm a guy, I'm a big Notre Dame fan outside of the Kentucky Wildcats. And when Brian Kelly went to Notre Dame, I know the, you know, with the fake country accent, my family, that Brian Kelly down at LSU, when he came to Notre Dame, before he got into all all the the muddle huddle stuff that he liked to run in Cincy when he came over to Notre Dame, he, he really liked that outside stretch run. And the goal was to get everybody flowing horizontally, then cut it back north and south off their hip. And that's where the biggest plays come from, right? So that's what it's designed to do. And it's designed to stress the defense horizontally and then use the play-action pass on mid to deep crossers with West Coast safety valves, such as, you know, halfback flats and, and short dinos, things like that. Some people call a dino a zig. I call it a dino. I have my whole life when I started studying tape and, and learning football terminology. But essentially, it's – all right, let's get the let's get the defense flowing on play action horizontally, and then let's let's really really attack with deep crossers, deep digs, and then have short safety valves underneath. Now there's an RPO aspect that comes into play there when it comes to Aaron Rodgers, right? Aaron Rodgers has the freedom at the line of scrimmage to you know to me it seems almost as if every single running play that the Packers run. I'm kind of exaggerating a little bit. But most of their running plays really seem like they're RPOs. And it's just Aaron's Aaron's got the choice and option there that, hey, look, if I see somebody creeping up, I'm going to hammer this slant or this smoke route. We talked a little bit about that in the past. So um, you've kind of got this, this unique approach where you've got two great offenses in the San Francisco 49ers and the L.A. Rams. Matt LaFleur is right in between them. He's like a hybrid of both of those offenses. And then you add in a Hall of Fame first first ballot Hall of Fame quarterback who's got the pre-snap knowledge, which you guys know how I feel about pre and post-snap. I think it's the two most important attributes of a quarterback is their ability to read the defense both pre and post-snap. You add him into the mix, and that's where you get this true hybrid offense that the Green Bay Packers have become. And, and, uh, you know, as much as I want to see them run the rock, more and more because I love A.J. Dillon. I love Aaron Jones. I think we've got a great offensive line when it comes to running the football. Um, at the same time, you do not want to unplug Aaron Rodgers' brain. This guy has so much football knowledge. He's got so much experience. And if he can see something at the line of scrimmage, it keep you out of those negative plays because, to me, that's the name of the game when it comes to playing offense in the National Football League is do not make negative plays, period. And, yes, you want to push the ball down the field, but, you know, as we've seen last year, Aaron Rodgers was deadly on short accuracy, right? He missed on some big shots. I get it. But give me the play, you know, one player after another, short to mid, short to mid range, moving the ball down the field, leaning on your running game, play action, lean on your running game, play action, hit those uh, mid to deep crossers. Yes, the shot plays are going to happen. Those opportunities are going to be there, especially when they load the box. But take what the defense gives you. That's kind of the name of the game for me. So I hope that explains the offensive aspect, Jake. What we're going to do now, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to jump into Joe Barry and this defense, kind of talk a little bit about it. Then we're going to get you guys out of here. But like I said, let's pay some bills, take a quick commercial break. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. 
In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, so let's dive into the defense. So Joe Barry, obviously the new defensive coordinator last year for the Packers, everybody was questioning the call. They said that's going to be Matt LaFleur's biggest goof up, biggest gaffe was hiring him as defensive coordinator. Why would you get rid of uh, Mike Pettin and bringing this, uh, this guy who's unproven? Well, obviously you've seen what the defense did. I think Joe Barry's an excellent coach. He's an excellent, excellent motivator. He understands people skills. He understands servant leadership, all those things, but also he understands the importance of the Vic Fangio defense. And before we dive into the Vic Fangio defense, what I want to do is give you guys a snapshot of how defenses have morphed and changed over the years throughout the history of the National Football League. First of all, in the 1920s through the 40s, you know, they were eight-man boxes. These guys just lined up and cracked skulls. That's all they did. You had guys that were running the, the Notre Dame box offense, which is, <clears throat> excuse me, exactly what Curley ran for so long. And then toward Cur the end of Curley's uh, tender, the, the T formation came in, and it was just all about running the football until in the 40s Curley opened it up with the passing game. But before then, it was eight-man boxes. It was, you know, six-down linemen, and, and everybody just crowded in there. And, hey, look, it's going to be three or four yards in a cloud of dust. If it's three, the defense wins. If it's four, the offense wins. That's basically how it worked, right? So – when you get into the 1950s and 60s, uh, Tom, Land Tom Landry, you know, you guys know him as the great uh, Dallas Cowboys coach. He was actually the defensive coordinator for the New York football giants for a long time. He revolutionized defense with the 4-3 defense. And the reason he did that was because people like Curly Lambeau 
uh, toward the end of his tenure and other guys across the league kind of caught on, they started passing the ball more. And they felt like it was more conducive to stopping the run and the pass if they had four down linemen and three linebackers patrolling the middle. And that allowed their DBs to free up a little bit to cover the pass. Okay, this wasn't the pass-heavy offense you see today, but it was, it, it was you know, considered to the 1920s through the 40s, right? So you've seen the 4-3 defense come on there in the 50s and 60s. Then when you get in the 1970s, just after Lombardi leaves, lo and behold, John Madden comes on the scene with the Raiders, and he uh, starts to implement this thing called the 34 defense. Now, to the best of my knowledge, I, I don't know for sure if John Madden – created the 34 defense right but what basically the 3-4 defense is is three down linemen four linebackers the three down linemen are designed to, to control two gaps in the running game that frees up four linebackers to flow to the ball make the tackle but the 34 defense allowed you to disguise a lot of blitzes things like that so in the 1970s John Madden brought that on the scene along with a host of others I'm sure but that became kind of the popular look in the 70s when you get in the 80s the 46 defense emerges from the uh, 85 Chicago Bears, you guys know Buddy Ryan kind of made this famous with both the Bears and the Eagles when he coached there. And the 40, 46 defense was basically kind of going back to the eight-man box, but not to stop the run, although that was a uh, you know a, a, a side factor. That was a byproduct of having the box loaded. But with the 46 defense, it was called the 46 defense because they brung a safety up into the A and B gap. And that safety for the Chicago Bears just so happened to wear the number 46. And his name eludes me right now. But their whole goal was, we're going to put our guys in single coverage on the outside. And you might beat us. But by God, we're going to put your quarterback on his butt every single play. We're going to hit your quarterback every single snap. And that's exactly what they did. So, uh, you know, the 46 defense come on the scene. You still had the old school college 4-4. You had the 4-3. You had the 34 looks. Now you start to see all this stuff kind of, you know, meld together, and, and these defenses become uh, a lot more, uh, you know, modernized, I guess you could say. When you get into the 90s, you had people like Dick LeBeau and Dom Capers and guys like that who came on, and they created the zone blitz. The zone blitz was made really, really famous in Pittsburgh with Dick LeBeau. And the zone blitz was really simple. Most of the time, I think all the time, as a matter of fact, it was run out of a 34 defense as their base. Obviously, nickel would probably be a 2-4-5. But their goal was let's blitz from all over. But wherever we blitz from, we want another defender dropping into that zone. OK, so it was kind of this uh, this schematic approach to confusing the quarterback, not knowing where the blitz was coming from. So that automatically throws your your uh, pre-snap protection set up into disarray. But also you might be thrown right into the hands of a dropping, uh, you know, a dropping defender who you thought was going to be rushing you a la, uh, you know, um, uh, B.J. Raji there in the NFC Championship the, in 2010 when the Packers won the Super Bowl, right? There's a That was a perfect fire zone, 34 zone blitz is what it was. Um, now, when you get to the 2000s, Bill Belichick shows up and he just steals the whole show, right? What Bill Belichick did was bring a multi-hybrid approach. So he had – what he wanted was guys who could put their hand in the dirt and rush the quarterback but also drop into coverage and do it very, very effectively. And they called it a, a hybrid defense, a multi front defense and one of the players that made it famous was Willie McGinnis you guys know him on NFL Network what an excellent excellent football player he was perfect he had the size to rush the quarterback he had the size to stop the 
to stop the run, but he also had the quickness and agility and smarts, the knowledge of the game to drop into coverage. And he was perfect for that multi-hybrid look. You know, the coach for the Tennessee Titans right now, Mike Vrabel, was another person that could play that hybrid look very, very well. Uh, Dante Hightower for Belichick did, did excellent for quite some time. Teddy Bruschi kind of came on the scene there in the early years and did really well with it as well, you know, playing alongside Willie McGinnis. But when you get into the 2010s, Pete Carroll comes onto the scene and they start showing a single high look. Now, when you think single high, you sometimes you think, okay, that's vulnerable to the pass because it's just a guy deep in the middle. What Pete Carroll did was he brought kind of this hybrid approach with a cover three zone defense, but his three defensive backs had man principle concepts embedded within their scheme. I don't have the time to go into all the details there, but essentially what Pete Carroll did was showed a single high cover three look. Okay. Now, 2020s, why do I mention that? As that defense became popular and offenses began to dissect it, just like every single defense that I just explained to you guys, everybody eventually figures it out. Well, now you have Vic Fangio's scheme coming on, and this is a two-deep scheme. This basically means where Pete Carroll had one single high safety and the other safety roam in the box, what Vic Fangio's scheme does is it has two safeties on the shelf two high safeties, okay? And essentially, the corners will play off the line enough to show a cover four look, although not all the time do they run a cover four look. I apologize for the pages flip. I took last night and wrote down some notes. I wanted this to flow. I didn't want it to be something scattered. You know how my mind works. I'll be talking about defense one second and then talking about barbecue I ate last week the next, right? So I wanted to make sure this stuff was wrote down. So let's look at Joe Barry. In uh, Vic Fangio's style of defense here. Now, occasionally what Joe Barry likes to do up front is use a, a 6-1 tilt up front, okay? He likes to kind of roll stuff around on the front, on the front side to uh, not really to confuse the offensive line, to put them at a disadvantage, especially when covering the run game, okay? And what he likes to do is a 6-1 tilt up front, and he has zone coverage for shot plays. So when they come to the line of scrimmage, and, and the reason I think this is so effective, and it really excites me about having this as our base defense, I say base, I guess it would be considered a base defense, yeah. Um, what excites me about it is, you know, everybody's opinion is formulated based off their past experiences. I mean, you see that every day in politics. You see it with religion. You see it with just anybody's take, anybody's um, approach to any situation. Your opinion has been formed off your past experience. Well, my past experience as a Packer fan was watching Aaron Rodgers struggle against too high, especially too, too high man under. That was something that Rodgers is the type of quarterback. He's not too much of a free spirit when it comes to uh, being on the field, right? And um, he's one of these guys that he uh, um, he doesn't like to take chances. He, he, he likes to take risks, but they're calculated risks. And when you come to the line and you read man under press and you've got two safeties on the shelf and your coach, your offensive approach, you know, Mike McCarthy back in the day might not be saying, hey, all right, check to the run, or maybe Aaron didn't want to check to the run. Um, that's going to put you at a disadvantage. So when I've seen that over and over and over with Aaron struggling against two my, two man under, when I've seen somebody, every time I've seen somebody sliding in the box with a delayed blitz, I, my eyes lit up because I knew Aaron Rodgers was smart enough to find the hole in the defense. But with two man under, there's not much of a hole. You've got to run people out of that shell. So that's something that got me very, very excited about this defense, right? And it is a very much so a bend but don't break defense. And, and you've seen that time and time again this year. 
You know, you've seen the, uh, you know, the one of the plays that comes to mind is a Russell Douglas play. You know, although they were being a lot more aggressive with that look, it, to me it looked like a kind of a 34 front. They were inside the 10. But it was like Arizona went down the field, bing, 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 all the way down the field. And, and it's like, man, this is going to suck. There's 15 seconds left. They've got the ball second and goal, right? I think they even had – I can't remember if they had any timeouts. No, they, I don't think they had any timeouts. And it's like, this is going to suck that they beat us like this. But what they did was made them use up every second of every second on the clock. They made them tire out their offense, and then they get inside the 10 of what happens. Let's play it. High snap again. End zone and picked off. Intercepted by Rasul Douglas. And the Packers are going to win. was almost blocking out there. I mean, I, I, I don't – I'm not sure exactly what A.J. was doing at all. Everyone else – you see Kyler Murray on the ground. Here's a look at it. I, I, I don't know that – I'm not sure exactly what happened with A.J. Green. If he just saw the way that Douglas was playing him, that the ball was going elsewhere or what. But what a play by <laughs> Rasul Douglas. His first interception, and Aaron Rodgers can celebrate as the Green Bay Packers have knocked off the Arizona Cardinals and handed the – Bim, but don't break, right? And and here's what's awesome about it. Pre-snap, the defense shows not not necessarily on this play, but I'm just talking about in general. Pre-snap, what they like to show in this Fangio Joe Barry version of the Fangio defense is they want to show cover four shell as long as possible. For as long as possible, uh, what this does is it forces the quarterback to make post-snap reads. Guys, I'm telling you, you would be surprised at how many quarterbacks, how few quarterbacks, I should say, in the National Football League are not good at post-snap reads. I mean, you could you could definitely count them on your fingers, right? There's probably no more than 10 in the league that are good at post-snap reads. Well, when you when you stay in that cover four high shell as long as possible, then it forces the quarterback to post-snap read, okay? Because he he's you know he knows that you're not running a cover four all game long because as soon as he snaps the ball, there's moving parts everywhere, right? It's really it's the opposite of what we call sugar. And if you guys don't know what sugaring is, um, you know, it's something that that Belichick did so well with that hybrid defense against Peyton Manning there in the early 2000s or in the uh, yeah, in the in the uh, yeah, the early 2000s, I guess you could say mid 2000s as well. But what he did so well was they they learned what Peyton Manning's uh, snap count was. And when I say snap count, as you guys know, Peyton Manning, you always think Omaha, Omaha, right? He's not just up there shouting words for no reason. He comes to the line of scrimmage. He reads the defense. He tries to get tips from the defense. Is the safety is the safety on his heels or is he on his toes? Is he looking to creep into the box? If so, how's this coverage going to roll? Okay. Now he changes the play at the line of scrimmage once the defense shows their hand. What Belichick did, they spent several weeks, <coughs> excuse me, several weeks watching the tape, and they came up with an internal clock. They said Peyton will not go into his offense until there's, you know, whatever it is, eight seconds left on the play clock because he's reading the defense. Let's sugar him. Let's show one thing, and then when we get to that seven to eight second mark on the play clock, then move into our coverage. Well, now it's too late for Peyton Manning to change the play, okay? So that's what you call sugaring, 
right? Well, this is kind of the opposite of it. It has the same effect, but it's the opposite of sugaring. You know, Peyton Manning, he, he struggled against that with New England, like I said, but really what they would do is now what Fangio's defense does and Joe Barry's is they stay in that cover four shell as long as possible. And then as soon as the ball snapped or right before the ball snapped, they move into their defense real quick. So it forces the quarterback who can't make a post snap read to come to the line and go, well, crap, there's two safeties on the shelf. All right, let's go to the check down. And then they snap the ball. They don't post snap read. There's moving parts. And now all of a sudden it's not a cover four shell and we're underneath playing that cloud look. Right. You know, a staple in this defense is definitely cover six. And you know, when it comes to cover six defense, it's really, really simple, guys. It's it sounds very confusing, but it's not. It's cover four on one side of the field and cover two on the opposite side. And typically the cover four is going to be on the strong side of the field with the cover two being on the weak side of the field. And what you're basically doing is you're taking the, the strength of the cover four defense on the side that's got the, the most targets, the most available targets for the quarterback, and you're overloading that with what some people would consider a, a cover four is like a prevent defense. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible – to pass against a cover four defense, it really is. But on the cover two side, that's where you see people like a Russell Douglas being aggressive underneath and, and making, uh, you know, getting a lot of interceptions and, and breaking on the ball because the majority of the coverage is rolled to the other side and you're forcing them out of their strength and you're essentially making them play left-handed, which is Bill Belichick 101. His goal every week was to make teams play left-handed, period. That's what he always wanted to do. He wanted to look at the film, look at a four-game saturation, maybe a two-game saturation of the last time that they played that specific, that particular team. And they said, okay, they went to uh, – the one that stands out to me is Owen Daniels. I watched a, a special on Belichick and how – actually, it's in a book that I read. It's called Football Genius by Michael Lombardi. I'm not a big fan of Michael Lombardi from a personal standpoint, but, man, the guy's been around some great football minds, and that book is one of my favorites. It's called Football Genius, and he talked about that that very thing of uh, of how Belichick would, would come in, and, and they said, you know, when, there's, when they need a big play, they're going to go to Owen Daniels. I think they were playing Houston that week. They're going to go to Owen Daniels if they need a big play. So what they did was they designed the system, the scheme that week, to shut down Owen Daniels. So they take away the primary target, and they force you to play left-handed. Well, doesn't that sound familiar? Isn't that exactly what happened to the Packers there in the uh, NFC Divisional Round game there against the 49ers? They took away Tay, forced us to play left-handed, and when the game was on the line, Rodgers forced it to Devontae Adams when he had underneath routes open, right? Another thing that Belichick does is kind of off topic, but he likes to take, rather than putting his best cornerback on the best wide receiver, he likes to put two, he likes to put his, his second and third best corner on their best wide receiver, on the number one wide receiver, and then take his number one corner and put it on their number two wide receiver. Absolutely brilliant. I mean, absolutely brilliant. It's worked so great for so long. It's why he has one of the best defenses year in and year out. But like I was saying, they like to mix in a cloud underneath zone where there's help deep. So on that cover four side, right, they know they've got two safeties deep on that on, on that half of the field, that being a cover four. Imagine a cover four defense being four safeties deep across, you know, the deep part of the field. You basically got the field broken down into quarters and into fourths, right, across the field. Well, just on half of the field, there's two safeties. On the other half, there's only one safety. Well, on that side where they've got two safeties up top, that allows, you know, an Adrian Amos who might be floating around in the box 
to be more aggressive and play underneath. That allows Rasul Douglas to jump routes playing that cloud coverage underneath. It's it's huge. It's absolutely huge. So from a two high, what they like to do too is they can roll post snap into a cover three single high look. So they're showing a cover four with two on the shelf, right? And they're showing their corners, you know, anywhere from five to eight yards off the line of scrimmage. So, you know, they're not playing press man. And then as soon as the ball snap, they roll into a cover three, which is essentially a single high defense, Pete Carroll's defense from the Legion of Boom days. It's just pre-snap, it's showing cover four. And like I said, there's so few quarterbacks who read post-snap that it's very, very effective unless you get into a game where you're playing somebody like a Tom Brady who has the guts to stand in there, read the thing out post-snap. Aaron Rodgers is one of the best post-snap read quarterbacks in the history of the game. Very, very fortunate to have him. So up front, let's talk up front before we wrap this thing up. We're running out of time here. Up front is real simple. Uh, they don't commit to a two gap, nor do they scream up field, you know, to maintain, you know, as if they're just playing one gap. It's kind of in between. They they try to maintain enough body control so that they can fall back on their secondary gaps if need be. Okay, so it's two gap principle, but they're not they're not just laying back and going, okay, my top priority is to cover these two gaps, nor is it, all right, I need to push up field and blow up this A gap. It's kind of in between. It's working your way into the backfield and then being able to fall back to their secondary gap. And what that does is the goal is to force the back to roll outside. So when they fall back on that secondary gap, the back now has to roll outside. This gives the safeties and the corners plenty of time to snug up. And you've seen it this year. One of the best tackling safeties in the entire National Football League was Adrian Amos. And really the reason he was so effective was because they were playing up front with just a little bit of a little bit of conservativeness, right? They, they weren't screaming up in a one-gap, you know, uh, kind of technique, and they they darn sure wasn't just laying back and lollygagging in a two-gap. It was kind of a hybrid right in between. It's huge uh, against the run especially. It just allows your, your safeties to have time to get in the box and make the play, and obviously linebackers as well. So against heavy sets – uh, you know, typically what they like to do is they like to sugar early and they and they appear to have a light box, right? And when you come out in that cover four shell, okay, it looks like a light box. But as soon as the ball snapped and they roll into that cover three, that single high look, now the extra safety is in the box. And if it's well-timed, it's, it's what they call a, quote, roll technique. If it's timed perfect, I'm telling you right now, man, the, the offensive line get thrown off because they, now they're blocking assignments change on the spot. And I'm sorry, there's not an offensive line in the league that's going to consistently uh, make the right decisions when you have to make a split-second decision after after everything's already been set up, the mic's been, been identified, everybody has their assignments in code from the quarterback and the center, and then all of a sudden an extra defender's in the box that you didn't expect. That, that late roll technique is huge when playing the run. So what's cool is, you know, as we talk about this and we wrap all this up, guys, you know, Vic Fangio, he got his start as defensive coordinator. He was a linebackers coach way back in the day, but his first defensive coordinator job, to the best of my knowledge, was in 1995. And it was with the expansion Carolina Panthers. Do you guys remember the the, the expansion year? Some of you may not have even been alive, and that, that makes me sad, to be honest with you, but – the expansion year in 95 when the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Carolina Panthers came in, guess who the Carolina Panthers' first head coach was? It was Dom Capers. He came from Pittsburgh, and his defensive coordinator, coordinator was Vic Fangio. Well, Dom Capers was our defensive coordinator in 2010 when we won the Super Bowl with the Packers, right? Isn't it amazing how everything comes full circle? And I mention that because go back 
to all of those previous defenses and how it changed from the 1920s all the way up to the 2020s and how things evolved and morphed into what they are today. I mean, it's it's pretty uh, pretty amazing that the guy that Joe Barry got this defense from, his first defensive coordinator spot was with the Carolina Panthers where they run a 34-zone blitz scheme. And this is the farthest thing from a zone blitz scheme. But it just shows you how Fangio adapted and, and you know, molded into what the NFL was. Guys, it's a copycat league. And if you're not willing to change, you know, I can't remember the quote that I read the other day. God, what was it? It said, uh, um, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even worse, right, even less. If you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. You better be willing to change. You better be willing to adapt. And that's exactly what Fangio and these disciples have done right now. Fangio was out of the game this year. Obviously, he got fired from Denver as head coach, but he'll be back. You watch next year. He will have a job. There's hands down. He will have a job. It won't be a head coaching job, but he'll have a defense coordinator position. I hope we keep Joe Barry around. But if for some reason Joe Barry gets offered a, you know, if, if they come out and they have a top five defense and he gets offered a job somewhere else, boy, I say you throw the book at Vic Fangio and get him in here. I know we're speaking way out of turn and it's way, way too far ahead for that stuff. But what's really cool is in that book, Gridiron Genius, that I mentioned, Michael Lombardi actually talked about an extensive coaching search that he uh, had to do. And he created a formula. And I think he was, I can't remember, it kind of blurred together as I was reading it. I need to go back and read it and get you the details. But I think it was for, it was either for Bill Walsh or it was for Al Davis. It might've been for Al Davis, but he put a formula together and his job was to go out and find the best head coaching candidates for the national football league for the team he was working for. And he put in this huge, huge formula And it only spit out a few qualified candidates. Guess what one of those select few were? It was Vic Fangio. Pretty cool, right? So, and you're probably going, oh, yeah, well, I bet he put that in the book because Vic Fangio's defense is the rave right now. No, he wrote that book like five years ago. So, this was before Fangio really – everybody started running the Fangio defense, I should say. So, pretty cool stuff. Um, Yeah, so – I hope that answered your question, Jake. <laughs> that might have been the most long-winded answer I've ever given on a podcast. But, man, as soon as I read it, I said, oh, boy, I even posted in the Discord chat with the guys for Packernet Podcast. I said, man, somebody done opened the door, and they're about to find out how much of an X's and O's geek I am. So uh, it was it was a blast to, to, get, that sh- to get to share that with you guys. Um, as far as news as we wrap up, uh, the only thing I'll say is, uh, you know, Christian Watson is on the PUP list. That was the big news that broke yesterday. Everybody's freaking out. What's he doing on the PUP list? It doesn't matter, guys. It's it's the preseason. They those This isn't the PUP list that they can't wait until week six to come off of, okay? I know a lot of people are getting scared by that. Uh, I think Dean Lowry is also on the PUP list. There's a, a handful of people that are on it. Uh, they can They can be activated at any point. Uh, Elton Jenkins is on it. Robert Tunyon's on it. They can come off at any point, right? I think Robert Tunyon, if the rumors were true, he's still ready to go for week one. That would be freaking awesome. I don't expect Elton Jenkins back for week one. I just don't, um, you know, call me a pessimist, but I like to be realistic about that stuff. But here's the great news. One person that wasn't on that PUP list, that day-to-day PUP list, was David Bakhtiari. So that should tell us he's ready to go. And that is huge freaking news for us Packer fans. So hope you enjoyed this show today, guys. Again, I apologize for the voice. I tried to patch it together, 
And uh, it's a heck of a time to start using this new system and try to go unedited for a full, whatever it is, 30, 45 minutes, an hour. Um, because uh, when you come down with something like this, at any point the voice could go and I got to chug water and you guys are waiting and I can't edit it. <laughs> but this was a blast to talk X's and O's. Do me a favor. If you enjoyed this episode, I can't imagine, you know, everybody's different. You know, some people like to listen to football content to just kind of get a good laugh and learn a little bit about football or find out the latest gossip going around the league. God knows there's plenty of that, right? You get the Kyler Murray contract. Everybody's it's either the best decision in the world or it's the worst decision in the world. That's sports talk right now. Right. And sometimes I, I kind of wonder about the X's and O's type episodes. Is this something that people enjoy? So if it was, do me a favor, man, shoot me a message, send me an email on Packers, Packers total access at gmail.com. Uh, or maybe send me a DM on Twitter. Somebody added me to a Twitter chat today. I got his name eludes uh, uh, me right now, but uh, man, it's been a blast in there. Just hooking up with about 80 different Packer fans. I was honored to be invited to that and, uh, and just getting there and chat. But if this is something that you enjoyed, let me know because we can do more of this in the future. I just want to make sure I'm bringing you guys the content. That's why I always try to answer the emails. If you don't like the content, then email the show and tell me what you'd like to talk about, okay? Because that's uh, that's what's going to steer and drive this show moving forward. I'm really excited about the preseason coming up. We're going to test our new post-game show. I think you guys will enjoy that content and uh, and all that. So with that being said, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us. We really appreciate it. We don't take it lightly. You took time away from your family or from your work or whatever it is. You could be watching or listening to anything in the world and you're, and you're choosing to hang out with us. We, uh, we definitely appreciate it. So as always, let's go out and be the change that we want to see in the world, and go Pack Go. Third down, it is to go. 